6. Isles. Patrick Henry at once fell in with Clark's plan. He arranged that the government should furnish $6,000, but as it was needful that the utmost secrecy should be preserved, nothing was said about the matter to the Virginia Assembly. Clark was to erase his own company among the frontiersmen. The whole burden of making the necessary preparations rested upon him. Clark starts on his long journey with good heart he shouldered it, and in May, 1778, was ready with 153 men to start from the Redstone Settlements, on the Monongahela River. He stopped at both Pittsburgh and Wheeling for needed supplies, then his flatboats, manned by tall backwoodsmen in their picturesque dress, rode or floated cautiously down the Ohio River. They did not know on how great a journey they had entered, for even to his followers Clark could not tell his plan. Toward the last of the month, on reaching the falls of the Ohio, near the present site of Louisville, they landed on an island, where Clark built a fort and drilled his men, some of the families that had come with him, and were on their way to Kentucky, remained there until autumn, planting some corn and naming the island Corn Island, when about to leave, Clark said to the men, we are going to the Mississippi, some were faint heart and wished to turn back, you may go, said Clark for he wanted no discontented men among his number. From those remaining he carefully picked out the ones who seemed robust enough to endure the extreme hardships which he knew awaited them. As the success of the enterprise depended upon surprising the enemy, it was extremely important that he press forward as secretly and as speedily as possible. Accordingly, the men rode hard, night and day, until they came to an island off the mouth of the Tennessee River. Here it was their good fortune to meet with a small party of hunters who had been at the French settlements not long before. These men cheerfully joined Clark's party, agreeing to act as guides to Kaskaskia. If you go by the water route of the Mississippi, said these hunters, the French commander at Kaskaskia will get news of your coming, through boatmen and hunters along the river, and will be ready to defend the fort against you. The fort is strong and the garrison well trained and if the commander knows of your approach he will put up a good fight. So it was decided to go by land. At one time the guide lost his way, and Clark was angry, for he feared treachery. But after two hours they found the right course again. On the evening of July 4th the Kaskaskia was reached. The fort was only three miles away, but it was across the stream, remaining in the woods until dusk. They rested, then, as night fell, they pushed on to a little farmhouse only a mile from the fort. Here Clark obtained boats and silently, in the darkness, conveyed his men across the stream. After two hours all was ready for the attack. Clark divided the men into two bodies, one to surround the town and prevent the escape of the fugitives, and the other, led by himself, to advance to the walls of the fort. A postern gate on the side facing the river had been plonked out by a captive, and Clark stationed his men so as to guard it. Then he went inside along to the entrance of the large hall where public gatherings were held. It was brilliantly lighted, and floating through the windows came the music of violins. The officers of the fort were giving a dance, and young Creole men and maidens were spending a merry evening. Even the sentinels had left their posts in order to enjoy the festal occasion. Alone, Clark passed through the doorway and stood with folded arms, in grim silence, coolly watching the mirthful dancers. Lying upon the floor just inside the door was an Indian brave, as he raised his eyes to the face of the strange backwoodsman standing out clearly in the light of the torches. He sprang to his feet with a piercing war hoop. The music broke off suddenly, a hush fell. Then the women screamed, and there was a wild rush for the door, without stirring from the place where he stood. 
Clark quietly said, go on with your dance, but remember that you now dance under Virginia, and not under Great Britain. Scarcely had he uttered these words when his men, seeing the confusion, rushed into the forts and seized the officers, among whom was the French commander. Then Clark sent runners throughout the town to order the people to remain within their houses. The simple heart Frenchmen were in a panic of fear. The next morning some of their chief men, appearing before Clark, begged for their lives. We will gladly become slaves, they cried. If by so doing we may save our families, we do not wish to enslave you. Clark answered, and if you will solemnly promise to become loyal American citizens you shall be welcome to all the privileges of Americans. On hearing these words the French people were so carried away with joy that they danced and sang and scattered flowers along the street. By his kind way of dealing with them, Clark made the people of the town his friends instead of his enemies. A little later the people of Vincent also solemnly promised to be loyal citizens, and, taking down the English flag, they raised the American stars and stripes over their fort. Life in the old French villages you will enjoy a glimpse of the life in these old French villages for it is quite different from that of the settlements we had visited. There are many little hamlets, like Kaskaskia and Vincennes, on the western frontier. They have been in existence for years, but had not increased much in strength or size. The French people living there had never mingled with the American backwoodsmen. They had kept by themselves, remaining for the most part half-homesick emigrants. Many of them are engaged in the fur trade, some are adventure-loving wood rovers and hunters but the most of them are farmers on a small scale. Their little villages, composed of hovels or small log cottages, are guarded by rough earthworks. A few roomy buildings serve as storehouses and strongholds in times of danger. There are also little wine shops, as in the old country, which the French love, and in which they are always entertained by the music of violins. There is much gay color on the streets of these hamlets, for the Frenchmen are dressed in bright colored suits, made of Indian blankets and lounging about in cheap paint or soiled finery are lazy Indians, begging at times and at times idly watching the boats rowing up and down the river. We see, too, now and then, the familiar red and buff uniforms of the British Army officers, which are regarded with all whenever they appear, for you must remember that after 1763 all the French hamlets were in British hands, and the English officers were the great men of this country north of the Ohio. Clark's hard task although the life was gayer and easier in these French villages than in the frontier settlements, and although the taking of Kaskaskia and Vincennes had been easy, Clark still had a hard task before him. His small force was made up of men who were in the habit of doing as they pleased, and over them he had no control except through their personal liking for him. Furthermore, he was so many hundred miles from Virginia that he could not hope to get any advice or help from the government for months, or perhaps for an entire year. He must rely entirely upon himself, and we shall see that he was equal to the situation. Outside the villages, roaming over the great region he was hoping to conquer, were thousands of Indians. They were hostile, bloodthirsty, and ready to slaughter without pity. When they heard what Clark and his backwoodsmen had done, they crowded to Kaskaskia to see for themselves. Lurking back of their gloomy faces were wicked thoughts. Clark was in great danger from these Indians but he proved himself their master also, though carefully on his guard in any dealings he might have with them. He always appeared to them quite unafraid and confident that he could take care of himself. His boldness and firmness, even when surrounded by red warriors greatly outnumbering his own small force, had a profound effect upon them. Once he told them that he could appeal to the 13 council fires meaning, 
of course, be fourteen states and that they could send him men enough to darken the land, the Indians began to fear him and to look upon him as a mighty warrior, and when he held up to them the red wampum belt of war and the light of peace for them to choose which they would have, they chose peace and left the settlement, but there was still another very serious difficulty which Clark had to face, it caused even greater anxiety than the danger from the Indians, for it was within his own company, you remember that when his men started out they did not know that they were to go so far away from home. Now, when their time of service was up, they threatened to leave him and return to their homes. By means of presents and promises Clark persuaded about a hundred to stay eight months longer. The others left for home. A weaker man might have been quite helpless if left with so small a force. Not so Clark. He had wonderful power over people and soon the Creoles of the French villages had become so loyal that their young men took the places of the woodsmen who went away. Clark thoroughly drilled them all until they were finally trained for any service he might ask. It was well he did so. For Colonel Hamilton, the British commander at Detroit, who had charge of the British forces throughout the vast region which Clark was trying to conquer, was a man of great energy. Soon after getting news of what Clark had done at Kaskaskia and Vincennes, he began preparing for an expedition against the latter place. Early in October 1779 he set out from Detroit with 177 soldiers and 60 Indians. By the time he had reached Vincennes so many other Indians had joined him that his entire force numbered about 500. The fort at Vincennes, as you remember, contained only a handful of men, and it easily fell into Hamilton's hands December 17, 1779. If Hamilton had at once marched on to Kaskaskia, he might have captured Clark or driven him out of the Northwest, but that same tendency to put off, which had already cost the British many a victory, here again saved the day for the Americans, because the weather was so cold, the route so long, and the other difficulties in his way so great, Hamilton resolved to wait until spring before going farther, and not expecting to need his soldiers before spring. He sent back to Detroit the greater part of his force. He kept with him about 80 of the white soldiers and about the same number of Indian allies. About six weeks later Clark learned from an Indian trader how small the garrison was at Vincennes. You may be sure that he did not wait for seasons to change. Quick to realize that this was his chance. He gathered a force of 170 men nearly half of them Creoles and in seven days he was on his way to Vincennes. Clark captures Vincennes the route. 240 miles in length, led eastward across what is now Illinois. As often happens at this season, the weather had grown so mild that the ice and snow had thawed, causing the rivers to overflow, and the meadows and lowlands which lay along a large part of the route were underwater from three to five foot deep. When we remember that there were no houses for shelter, no roads, and no bridges across the swollen streams, we can imagine something of the hardships of this midwinter journey. Only very strong men could endure such exposure, knowing that cheerfulness would help greatly in keeping his men well and willing. Clark encouraged feasting and merrymaking as all were gathered at night around the blazing logs. There the game killed during the day was cooked and eaten, and while some sang and danced, according to Creole custom, others sat before the huge fires and told exciting stories about hunting and Indian warfare. Then, warmed and fed, all lay down by the fire for the night's rest. As long as this lasted the journey was by no means hard, but by the end of a week conditions had changed, for they had reached the drowned lands of the Wabash. Coming first to the two branches of the Little Wabash, they found the floods so high that the land between the two streams was entirely underwater, 
and they were facing a mighty river five miles wide and at no point less than three feet deep, while, of course, in the river beds it was much deeper, but Clark was resourceful, he at once had his men build a pirogue, or dugout canoe, in this he rode across the first branch of the river, and on the edge of the water-covered plain put up a scaffold, then the men and the baggage were ferried across in the pirogue, and the baggage was placed on the scaffold, last of all, the pack horses swam the channel, and standing by the scaffold in water above their knees, received again their load of baggage, all then proceeded to the second channel, which was crossed in the same way, it took three days to build the pirogue and cross the two branches of the river, during this time hunger was added to the other sufferings of the men, for the flood had driven all the wild animals away, so that there was no longer any game to shoot, advance was slow and extremely tiresome, for the men had to march from morning till night up to their waists in mud and water, they were nearing the great Wabash River, on February 20th the men were quite exhausted, there had been nothing to eat for nearly two days, many of the Creoles were so downcast that they began to talk of going home, Clark, putting on a brave face, laughed and said, go out and kill a deer, but meanwhile his men, acting under orders, had built three canoes, and on the morning of the 22 day the entire force was ferried across the Wabash, once on the side of the river where Vincent stood, they began to feel more cheerful, for by night they expected to be at the fort, it was well that they did not know what awaited them, for they had yet a better experience to pass through, almost all the way was under water, and as they went slowly on they often stepped into hollows where the water came up to their chins, but, guided by their bold leader, they pressed forward until they reached a hillock, where they spent the night, during the long hours of this trying day Clark had kept up the spirits of his men in every way he could, in telling about it later, he said, I received much help from a little anic drummer, a boy with such a fun-loving spirit that he made the men laugh, in spite of their weariness, that his pranks and jokes, on starting out again the next morning some were so weak and famished that they had to be taken in the canoes, those who were strong enough to wade came to a water too deep to walk through, and, painfully struggling, began to huddle together as if all hope had fled, then Clark had to do something to arouse them, suddenly he blackened his face with gunpowder and, sounding the war hoop like an Indian brave, fearlessly sprang forward, his men plunged in after him without a word, by dusk they were still six miles from Vincennes, their clothing was drenched, their muscles ached with weariness, and they were well nigh exhausted from lack of food, to make matters worse, the weather that day was bitterly cold, yet the worst experience of the whole trying march was to come, for before them stretched a shallow lake, four miles in extent, with something like a score of the strongest men just behind him, Clark plunged into the ice-cold water, breast deep, when they had gone about halfway across some of them were so cold and weak that they could not take another step, so the canoes were kept busy rescuing them and getting them to a land, those who, though weak, were still able to keep their feet, clung to the strong and plodded forward, when they had finally reached the woods bordering the farther side of the lake, they had not strength enough to pull themselves out, but clung desperately to the bushes and logs on the shore until the canoes could pick them up, on reaching land some were so exhausted that they fell upon the ground with their faces half buried in the water, but the stronger ones built fires and fed them broth made from some venison they had taken from squaws in an Indian canoe which happened along, with food and warmth courage returned, in the afternoon they set out again, after crossing a narrow lake in the canoes and marching a short distance, they reached a tree-covered spot from which they could see the town and the fort, there they made a stop and, 
hidden by the trees, made ready for the attack. There was some fighting that night, and it was continued the next day. Then Clark demanded the surrender of the fort. Hamilton at first refused, but, as he had only a small number of men, he had to give up both fort and garrison. He himself was sent a prisoner to Virginia. Clark's capture of Vincennes was the finishing stroke of his conquest. He had succeeded in one of the boldest enterprises ever undertaken in America. All the vast region he had set out to conquer remained under American control until the end of the Revolution, when, by treaty, it formally became a part of our country. In carrying out his plans Clark had not only risked his health and life, but he had used up all his property. In spite of the great service he had done his country, his last years were spent in poverty. For a while he lived alone in a rude dwelling on Corn Island, but later his sister took him to her home near Louisville. Here, in 1818, came to an end the life of this heroic soldier and loyal American. Some things to think about. 1. What was Clark's brilliant plan? 2. Imagine yourself with him on the evening when he captured the fort at Kaskaskia, and tell as fully as you can what happened. Tell something of his hard task in the days that followed. 3. Can you explain how it was that he had such a powerful influence over men? 4. In imagination go with Clark on his wonderful march from Kaskaskia to Vincennes and give an account of your trials and sufferings. 5. How do you account for Clark's remarkable success? What do you admire about him? 6. Are you making frequent use of the map? Chapters I The New Republic at the end of the Revolution Washington, as we have already noted, returned to his beautiful home, Mount Vernon, overlooking the Potomac. Here he again took up the many-sided duties which his large plantation made necessary for him. His busy day began when he arose at four o'clock in the morning and ended when he went to bed at nine o'clock in the evening. But his life was not so quiet as we might think, for he had so many visitors that at the end of two years he wrote in his diary one day, Dine with only Mrs. Washington, which I believe is the first instance of it since my retirement from public life, when the states, after securing their independence, United under the Constitution to form the nation called the United States of America, they needed a president. It was but natural that again all eyes should turn to George Washington, and he was elected without opposition. In his modesty he felt himself unfit to lead the American people in times of peace. In fact, this new service was for him perhaps the hardest that he had ever tried to render his country. Yet, as he believed with all his heart in the new government, he decided to accept the office. He was willing to give up his own comfort for the sake of trying to bring new life and prosperity to his countrymen. On April 16, 1789, two days after being informed of his election, he said goodbye to Mount Vernon and started out as a plain citizen in a private carriage on a seven days journey to New York, which was then the capital city of the United States. He wished to travel as quietly as possible, but the people were so eager to show their love for him and their trust in him that they thronged to meet and welcome him at every stage of the journey. When he passed through Philadelphia, under an escort of city troops, he rode a prancing white steed, and a civic crown of laurel rested upon his head. But the most touching tribute of all he received at Trenton, on the bridge spanning the little creek which he had crossed more than once when thirteen years before he was battling for his country's freedom was a floral arch. Under the say party of matrons and young girls carrying baskets of flowers took their stand. As Washington passed beneath the arch the girls sang a song of welcome and strewed flowers in the road before him. On the arch was the motto, The hero who defended the mothers will protect the daughters. 
When he arrived on the New Jersey side of the North River he was met by a committee of both houses of Congress. They escorted him to a handsomely equipped barge, manned by thirteen pilots, all dressed in white uniforms. Landing on the New York side, he rode through the streets amid throngs of shouting people, with salutes thundering from warships and from cannon on the battery, and bells joyfully ringing from church steeples, to give him a welcome. The inauguration took place on April 30th. A little afternoon Washington left his house, and under a large military escort made his way to Federal Hall, which was the Senate chamber. From there he was escorted out to the balcony overlooking a large space in the streets below, which were thronged with people. He took his seat by the side of a crimson-covered table, on which lay a Bible, as Washington stood up face to face with the Chancellor of New York State, who was to give the oath. A deep hush fell on the multitude below. Do you solemnly swear? asked Chancellor Livingston, that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of your ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I do solemnly swear, said Washington, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Then with deep earnestness he bent and kissed the Bible held before him, with the whispered prayer, So help me God, long live George Washington, President of the United States, exclaimed Livingston, and the excited throng took up the cry, shouting with wild enthusiasm, Thus was inaugurated our first President. Returning to the Senate chamber, Washington there delivered a short address. He was very much agitated, for he had a deep sense of the responsibility which had been put upon him. After he had given his address he attended service in St. Paul's Church, and then went to his new home in New York City. His life as president was one of dignity and elegance. It was his custom to pay no calls and accept no invitations, but between three and four o'clock on every Tuesday afternoon he held a public reception. On such occasions he appeared in court dress, with powdered hair, yellow gloves in his hands, a long sword in a scabbard of white polished leather at his side, and a cop hat under his arm. Standing before the fireplace, with his right hand behind him, he bowed formally as each guest was presented to him. The visitors formed a circle about the room. At a quarter past three the door was closed, and Washington went around the circle, speaking to each person. Then he returned to his first position by the fireplace, where each visitor approached him, bowed, and retired. One of his first public duties was the choosing of strong men to form his cabinet and help him in his new tasks as president. Thomas Jefferson was made Secretary of State, Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Knox, Secretary of War, and Edmund Randolph, Attorney General. John Jay was appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The new government had to settle more than one important question. One of these related to the method of paying the state debts which had been the outcome of the Revolutionary War. The northern states were in favor of having the national government take care of these debts. Washington himself wished in this way to unite the interests of all the states as well as have them feel that they had a share in the new government. The southern states, however, were bitterly opposed to this plan, but they, in their turn, were eager to have the national capital located on the Potomac River. Alexander Hamilton, by a clever arrangement, persuaded the opposing interests to adopt a compromise, or an agreement by which each side got a part of what it wished. The northern states were to vote for a southern capital if the southern states would vote that the national government should look after the state debts, 
This plan was carried out, and so it was decided that the capital of the United States should be located in the District of Columbia, on the Potomac River, and should be called Washington. After George Washington, in 1789, the seat of government was in New York, from 1790 to 1800. It was in Philadelphia, and in 1800 it was transferred to Washington, where it has ever since remained. The cotton gin and slavery One of the most noteworthy events which occurred during Washington's administration was the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney. Whitney was born in Massachusetts. While yet a boy he was employed in making nails by hand, for there was no machine for making them in those days. Later, when he entered Yale College, his skillful use of tools helped him to pay his college expenses. After being graduated from Yale he went south, where he became a tutor in the family of General Green's widow, then living on the Savannah River, in the home which, you remember, Georgia gave her husband. While he was in Mrs. Green's home he invented for her an embroidery frame which she greatly valued. One day, while she was entertaining some planters, they began to talk about the raising of cotton. One of her guests said that it did not pay well because so much time was needed to separate the seeds from the fiber. He added that if a way could be found to do this more quickly the profits would be far greater. Gentlemen, said Mrs. Green, tell this to my young friend, Mr. Whitney. Verily, I believe he can make anything. As a result of this conversation, in two or three months Eli Whitney had invented the cotton gin 1793, although in so doing he had to make all his own tools. The cotton gin brought about great changes. Before its invention it took a slave a whole day to separate the seed from five or six pounds of cotton fiber. But by the use of the cotton gin he could separate the seed from a thousand pounds in a single day. This, of course, meant that cotton could be sold for very much less than before. And hence there arose a much greater demand for it. It meant, also, that the labor of slaves was of more value than before. And hence there was a greater demand for slaves. As slavery now became such an important feature of Southern life, let us pause for a glimpse of a Southern plantation where slaves are at work. If we are to see such life in its pleasantest aspects, we may well go back to Virginia in the old days before the Civil War. There the slaves led a freer and easier life than they did farther south among the rice fields of South Carolina or the cotton fields of Georgia. If we could visit one of these old Virginia plantations as it used to be, where wheat and tobacco were grown. We should see first a family mansion, often situated on a hilltop amid a grove of oaks. The mansion is a two-story house, perhaps made of wood, and painted white, with its vine-clad porch in front, and its wide hallway inside. It has a very comfortable look. Not far away is a group of small log cabins. This cluster of simple dwellings, known as the quarters, is the home of the slaves, who do the work in the house and fields, on the large plantations of the far south. There were sometimes several slave settlements on one plantation, each being a little village, with the cabins set in rows on each side of a wide street. Each cabin housed two families, belonging to each was a small garden. The log cabins contained large fireplaces, and it was not unusual for the master's children to gather about them when the weather was cold enough for fires, to hear the Negroes tell quaint tales and sing weird songs. The old colored mammies were very fond of Moss's chiyun and liked to pet them and tell them stories. Sometimes the cooking for the master's family was done in the kitchen of the big house, but more often in a cabin outside, from which a Negro waitress carried the food to the dining room. The slaves had regular allowances of food, most of which they preferred to cook in their own cabins. Their common food was cornbread and ham or bacon, 
Some of the slaves were employed as servants in the master's house, but the greater part of them worked in the fields. They went out to a work very early in the morning. It often happened that their breakfast and dinner were carried to them in the fields, and during the short rest which they had while eating their meals they would often sing together. The slaves had their holidays, one of them being at the time of dog killing, which was an annual festival, in some parts of the South, in November or December, corn husking these were held, just as the white people held them on the frontier, when the corn was harvested, it was piled up in mounds 50 or 60 feet high, then the slaves from neighboring plantations were invited to come and help husk the corn, one negro would leap up on the mound and lead the chorus, all joining lustily in the singing. Other holidays were given the slaves on the 4th of July and at Christmas time. One Negro tells us about the barbecue which his master gave to him and the other slaves. Yes, honey, dad he did give us 4th of July a plenty o' holiday a beef kilt, a mutton, hogs, salt, pepper, and everything. He have a great trench dug, and a whole load of wood put in it and burned down to coals. Then they put wooden spits across, and they had spoons and basted to meat. And we invite all the cult people around, and they come, and we have fine times. The life of the slaves was sometimes hard and bitter, especially when they were in charge of a cruel overseer on a large plantation. But it was not always so, for it is pleasant to think that when they had good masters, there were many things to cheer and brighten their lives. We know that household slaves often lived in the most friendly relations with their owners. We must pass over many of the events which took place while Washington was president but you will very likely take them up in your later study. After serving with marked success for two terms, he again returned 1797 to private life at Mount Vernon. Here, on December 14, 1799, he died at the age.